You're listening to the Oregon Basketball Coaches Podcast, a product of the Oregon Basketball Coaches Association. To learn more, visit our website at or.nhsbca.org. Welcome to the Oregon Basketball Coaches Podcast. I'm Derek Duman, OBCA Vice President and Boys Basketball Coach at West Albany High School. Today, I'm joined by Jason Lowry, girls basketball coach at Jesuit Catholic High School. Coach, how are you doing today? I'm doing excellent, Derek. Thanks for having me tonight. Yeah, thank you for taking the time uh, to speak with us. Coach, uh, i like to start for, for those that might not be familiar with you and, and your basketball background. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your basketball journey and, and how you ended up as the girls coach uh, at Jesuit? Oh, man, that's, that's quite a journey uh, that I'm still still on. But, uh, you know, like, like most coaches, I played a lot of sports growing up, uh, you know, from north and northeast Portland back in the 80s and 90s. Uh, so an inner city kid, was a PIO kid, and grew up with the, the Jefferson-Grant rivalry kind of right there. And I kind of always had seen myself as, as part of that, you know, being part of that community and, seeing the Terrell Brandons and Damon Stoudemire's and Charles McKinney's, all these guys who were like idols to me. Um, then as I got closer to high school, um, you know, with the, with the drug epidemic and the um, gangs and everything, I was just kind of ready for something a little bit different. Uh, and I had a family friend, uh, Antoine Stoudemire, who graduated in 89 from, from Jesuit. Who he led the state in rebounding and scoring as a senior back in '89, um, and I just was like, "Hey, man, Jesuit sounds interesting." Didn't know much about it. Knew it was you know being a Northeast Portland kid, beaver and seemed like it was on the other side of the world. You know, took me like 50 minutes to get there on a bus, and I thought it was like the craziest thing ever. <laughs> um, but but my brother had who went to Wilson and played with Damon. And, and Charles McKinney and those guys who won state in 89, he had actually thought about transferring to Jesuit one year and he had an application just sitting in his room. And so here I am as a 13 year old eighth grader saying, you know, not talking to my parents, saying, let me look at Jesuit. So I filled out the app myself, um, went to my mom and said, hey, can you sign right here? Um, and she, she signed. And next thing I know, I was taking a placement test and I got in and and, you know, I don't know how we swung it. I don't know what finances look like, but I know my mom and dad just said, okay, you can go there, but you better be ready to work your butt off and you will not get a ride from us. <laughs> so you, gotta, you get on the bus every day and go there. So, so I got there, uh, played baseball and basketball there, had a great, great experience as far as getting prepared to be a college student, a college athlete, which is Jesuit does a great job at being a prep school. Um, so, yeah, so I played basketball and baseball for Jesuit, um, got recruited to play at a lot of small colleges places, mostly D2s, NAIs, and D3s. Ended up going to Pitzer College in Southern California, uh, one of the Claremont colleges down there, uh, about 30, 40 minutes east of L.A. Uh, athletically, it's known as Pomona Pitzer uh, because two colleges on that campus that, that combined to form athletics, so the NCAA knows us ask Pomona Pitcher, and I played for one of the greatest basketball minds I, I've ever met. His name is Charles Katsiasikis. 
He's in his 34th year at Pomona Pitcher right now. He, he took over the program uh, from Greg Popovich. Uh, Pop was there until 88, and then Pop left to go uh, to Kansas with Roy Williams, uh, and Cat took over for, for him. And Cat and Pop are like best friends. Uh, and, and, and everything that, that Cat believed and taught us basketball-wise um, came directly from Pop. Um, and Pop was around the, the program a lot. Uh, we played in San Antonio a couple of times, and he always took care of us when we went there. Um, so a, a lot of what I, what I learned, my, my philosophy at the root of who I am as a coach and a player, just kind of comes directly from that, that tree uh, of pop. So uh, I, I learned pretty early on in college that I love basketball. I absolutely cannot go without being a part of a program or team. But I also realized that I'm not going to make any money doing this. <laughs> so, so this this coaching thing is, is starting to, you know, it's starting to look pretty attractive. So, um, I think I think by the time I got to my second year, um, I pretty much knew I wanted to coach. And so, at the time I got to my senior year of college, I'm already looking for graduate assistant positions, um, assistant spots, writing the letters, trying to talk to different coaches. Um, and was actually able to secure a graduate assistant position uh, straight out of college at the University of Redlands, uh, which was a, it's a Division three school in, Los, uh, in Redlands, in the same league that I played against. So I played against this team for four years, uh, got, a, got an interview, nailed it, got the job, it, it, it paid for my master's degree. I was thrown right into college coaching. You know, I'm, I'm on the road recruiting, I'm scouting, um, I'm doing everything. I'm, I'm like really the lead assistant, even though I'm a graduate assistant, I was the only full-time assistant. And I played for this guy named Coach Smith, who coached about 36 years at Redlands. And he was a disciple of Tex Winter. And, and we ran the triangle. I mean, the original Bulls, old Lakers, sideline, Texas winner triangle. Uh, so I was able to learn that right out the gate. And I'm a, you know, a huge Laker fan. Um, and that's when Phil Jackson had, was just leaving the Bulls going to over to the Lakers. So I'm like, oh, this is awesome. So I was a, a triangle disciple. I mean, I, I still know it inside and out. Um, we taught it at Redlands. Uh, I was there for two years, uh, and uh, this job opened up uh, in Brea, California. It's called Hope International University. It's an NAI school, Division One school down there, um, maybe the best NAI league at the time. It was basically a, a D1 in disguise because L.A. was such a huge place with so many players that kids would leave, and then they come back home. And instead of maybe, you know, instead of, you know, sitting out another year to go D1, they just dropped to NAI and get a full ride. So that's, and it was a great coach, just, just awesome basketball. And so I actually got a head job uh, at this place. I was 23 years old. Um, it was my second interview ever. Um, I, I went in there, got it, did well, got that job. I was the youngest, uh, youngest four-year college university head coach in the country. Uh, at the time when I was hired, um, I had no assistants. 
no paid assistance. I was also sports information director. I taught three classes. We had no gym. We lit. We our our campus is across the street from campus, so we would practice either at six a.m. or at ten p.m. Those were our two options. Um, so we kind of did that for for that, and so it was just a tough job. I mean, just a hard, hard job. The kind of job that, that a 23 year old gets, <laughs> you know, right, I, I right. get the job. I'm like, yeah. I'm gonna take this over, I'm gonna beat all you guys. I know what I'm doing, <laughs> and then I get there and I'm just humbled and I'm learning so much from yeah. these dudes who've been coaching for 20, 30 years. And, and it was it was like going to another graduate school, being able to jump right in the fire. So, two years of that kind of wore me out. <laughs> it was this, this, <laughs> this, this stuff is pretty hard, uh, and and every been so fast so my, my old coach back back at Pomona Pitzer um, he became full time he became athletic director and he was able to negotiate to get a full time associate guy um, and which is pretty rare at the division three levels not a, a ton of of fully you know full assistance um, with salary so he created this position for me uh, and so I went back to Pomona so I left Hope International as a head coach to go back to Pomona Pitzer as an associate. And we had, and I learned a ton more under Coach Cat for four years. Uh, we went to the NCAA tournament a couple times, won a couple league titles. Um, he let me, he really gave me a lot of reign because he, like I said, he was the AD. So from eight to two o'clock, that's what he was doing. And I was running the basketball size, even though he was definitely the head coach. Don't get me wrong. Had a, a ton of responsibility, uh, and then so 2005 rolls around, and the Pacific job, Forest Grove opens up. You know, my, me and my wife are we're in our late 20s. We have a three year old. We have a one year old. We're both from Portland. I was like, oh man, this this may be our chance to get back. Even though we didn't really want to go back, but having two little ones, we like wouldn't be too bad to be around the grandparents and their uncles and aunts and have some help. And um, so, you know, I, I threw my hat in, did the job, came up and interviewed uh, my third interview, my third job. So I ended up getting that. Uh, I spent five years at Pacific uh, and it was, it was an okay job. It's not, it's not a bad job. I'm not saying that, but it, it was, it was challenging and that it wasn't Whitworth. It wasn't Puget Sound. It wasn't Linfield. It wasn't these these blue blood, you know, small college Northwest programs. Um, but we had some success early. Uh, I dealt with some horrible injuries my last couple of years. Um, it was it was experience uh, for those five years, and I was ready to keep going. But I was almost at the end of my rope. Uh, my daughters at the time were uh, eight and five. Uh, and, and needing more time and think about college coaching. I mean, you're, you're a recruiter first, you know, that, that, that's your job. And so I'm on the road all the time. And, and, and Portland kids don't want to go to Pacific. <laughs> they don't. <laughs> so I found out immediately that, that my bread and butter was in Washington, was in Idaho, was down in California. So I'm on the road all spring, all fall. And it was just getting old. And this is just to go. 12 and 12 just to be, you know i'm like is, is it worth it so so back in 2010 uh we we you know we finished our season probably late february so i'm at the washington state tournament 
Um, I'm at the JC tournament. I'm in, I'm, I'm all over the Northwest. I, I hit a hotel on a Saturday night. Do it. My old coach, Gene Potter, who's freaking amazing. Mm-hmm. They're playing Westview in the state title in 2010. So it's just Bolton, Kyle Wilcher and that group. Um, and before that game, the Jesuit girls played. Right. And so this was after right after Kathy Adelman had resigned and Mike McNeil was was the associate was the uh, interim coach. And they were up big in the first half and they lost in the they ended up losing that game. I remember watching it because, you know, uh, and I didn't watch a lot of girls basketball, to be honest. Uh, but I, I mm-hmm. watched that game and I was like, oh, you know, because it was on. And I just wanted to take my mind off of the, of everything else. Coach Potter's game, and then a couple hours after the game, I called Coach that night just to say congratulations. Say, hey, Coach, great job! Congrats on another state title. And then there, honestly, I don't know how this question came out of my mouth, but I knew it. I asked Coach. I said, "Hey, Coach, what's up with your women's job?" Just, just out of nowhere. Here I'm in the, mm-hmm. I'm in the middle. I'm in Central Washington in mid March, and I'm asking my old mentor and coach about the girls' job. And I'm like, I like, you know, I know they just went to the state title. And I know this coach just right. lost, but I, I would expect if you take a team to the state title or to the title game and you're an interim, you probably got a pretty good chance to get it. So I'm like, you know, is it even in play? And Coach Potter was like, oh, no, it's in play. Are you serious? Uh, yeah, Coach, I'm serious. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I get home Monday. And I'm getting the call from the AED. I'm talking to the principal. And a week later, I'm the head coach of Jesuit and a, uh, as well as a counselor. Um, and so it was – I had no interest. Believe me, before I asked that question, the coach I had no interest in coaching at the high school level. Uh, I liked that, that age of person. Um, and I had no interest in coaching girls. But for whatever reason, it was something deeper that it was that it had called called me, and it worked out. And this, I've told people from day one, next to raising, next to marrying my wife, is the absolute best decision I've ever made. Um, and so that's why that's why I'm a Jesuit, and I'm entering year eleven. Wow, that's awesome, Coach. Can you talk about? Um, I think one of the things that most head coaches I talk to, especially when I ask this question is, can you talk about the difference between being an assistant and then stepping over, you know, that six inches to being the head coach? Um, You know, especially you got to do it at the college level, right? Like what, what did you learn or what were you not expecting when you made, made that jump? Oh, that's a great question. Um, Well, obviously the, the spotlight is, enormous on the head coach. I mean, nobody cares really publicly what the assistant does as long as they don't mess, you know, embarrassing fashion. Um, but it's two completely different jobs. I mean, you have so much to think about. I mean, you're ordering balls and socks and, and recruiting and scheduling and doing all this. And sometimes if you're not organized and not sound enough of what you do, the basketball stuff can slip. And so, I, I like I said, Coach Katsiaficus, who's the head coach at Pomona Pitzer, I'll put him up against any coach in the country. 
it, it doesn't really matter. And I learned so much from him about how to run a program, how to communicate with his players, how to build a team, how to break down an opponent. He was a master scouter. Um, I learned a ton of from him with game game planning and, and stuff like that. So I think just the overall responsibility as a head coach, you're a CEO. You, you're, you're dealing with all type of stuff. As an assistant, my job is to assist my head coach. Uh, my job is to make that coach's job easier. My loyalty to that coach and then to those players. So it's a little bit different where when you're the head coach, you're, you're loyal, you're responsible for everything. My, my plate is huge. So the two biggest difference mm-hmm. the, the two biggest differences yeah what were some of the things you know you mentioned you know watching film scouting etc how did that time in college kind of impact what you do right now uh i would think that having to be that's a good question for basketball purposes uh we're big on game plan. I mean, defensive game planning is a huge part of who we are and what we do. I think we've won a lot of games. We won games in our program with our defense first. And so at the college level, everybody is so good at the high school level. I mean, you know, this is probably it's a little different on the boys side, but you're going to find a player or two out there who can't play. Right. It, 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 that team is going to have somebody on the floor who's like, eh, at college, everybody can play. Um, and also in high school, sometimes you run against, you run up against opponents or coaches who are not at quite at the same level as maybe, you know, some of the other peers were in college. If you're going up against a college head coach, you're going up against somebody who know what the hell they're doing. And so it, it may, and, and also my two jobs that I had prior to Jesuit in college, were both total rebuilds and traditionally poor programs. You know, I took over at Hope International. They won five games before I got there. When I took over at Pacific, they won five games before I got there. So so having to be, you know, so those two jobs taught me my first job is to not be so beatable. You know what I'm saying? I, I, I have First, I have to stop right. being bad. And so – that 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 came down to that we are going to play hard, we're going to play together, we're going to be organized. We're, like we don't need to help that team beat us. <laughs> so we we're gonna take care of those three things. And I think being able to coach, for lack of a ter- better term, bad teams early in my career, I learned how to be, how to coach not losing first, making sure that we are hard to beat. And that stuck with me. I mean, before anything, we're going to make sure we don't beat ourselves. Uh, not that we're sitting on the ball because we're extremely aggressive in, in the way we play, but I'm just going to make sure our house is in order because the other team doesn't need a lot of help to beat you at the college level. So I think that's the biggest thing I took from from my 13 years. Yeah, obviously, you know, at the college level, uh, you get a little more time with your players, right? And you get uh, to break down film one-on-one. And uh, yep. you have a little bit of that time at the high school level, but it's not quite the same, right? So, uh, you know, you talk about being big on preparation. What are some of the things that you do, um, you know, when it comes to game planning to prepare your kids for your next opponent? Um, that's a great question. We hit them with uh, 
different ways. I I have to, we have you have to know that the Jesuit kid is extremely coachable, extremely analytical, and if you give them correct information, they are going to take it and do right by it. So, our written scouting reports are extremely detailed, yet extremely specific and easy to follow. Um, so I start with. Uh, putting it in print. So let's say we're playing on Tuesday. Sunday night, uh, my kids are getting the written report. They're getting matchups. They're getting what we need to do, how we're playing stuff in the language that they've known that I've been teaching them ever since they've been there. They're getting that Sunday night. Monday morning, they're, I'm sorry, Monday after school before practice, we're watching 15 to 20 minutes of film of the other team and we're watching things that we need to take care of to give ourselves the best position, best possibility of winning. So if we're playing a team who's pressuring a lot, we're looking at the press. We're going over how we're going to attack it. If we're looking at a team who's zoning a lot, we're, we're, we're going through and I'll, I'll have like four or five clips of that set, three or four clips of that one. If it's a team with pretty special personnel, uh, that, you know, some players are going to have their own clip. You know, uh, Cameron Brink mm-hmm. had her own four clips. You know, Jamie Nard had her right. own seven clips. And so so that's Monday. Floor, and we do our stuff, we practice, and then we'll go over what else what we're doing again on the floor. But I, I would think the most important thing that, that I try to get my girls to understand when we're scouting and, and getting ready for a player is individual tendencies. I'm real big on on uh on personnel i think if you want to game plan well Mm -hmm. you need to know your team and you need to know their team and then you can decide how to best attack it and match up so so like if a kid is a shooter like a flat out shooter i don't want that kid catching and shooting all night period like they don't catch and shoot Mm -hmm. and 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 the jesuit kid is going to follow that order if you lay it out good for him so not as much time as in college, but I haven't found it to be any harder to get my kids prepared to play. Mm-hmm. That's great. Uh, one of the questions, so I, I got to coach girls early in my career, and I'm on the boys' side now. Um, and one of the things that was always asked of me, and I like to ask other coaches that have coached both, is, uh, what are some of the biggest differences that you noticed uh, between coaching girls and coaching girls? Uh, I was, when I first made the move to girls, it had to be like a two after. Uh, you know, Judge was a pretty high-profile college coaches want to make sure that they get to know our girls and myself. So I'm getting all these emails and phone calls from, from schools. So just congratulate for me for getting the job and trying to, start a relationship and one coach and I, I'm sorry I forget his name but he is at Concordia and he just told me like hey Jason the biggest difference because he had just did the same thing he went from boys to girls a few years ago mm. he said it's all about the the ease I said the ease like what is that he said ego for boys emotions for girls and if you can understand those two because a, a, a boy comes in and I'm, I'm I apologize I'm not trying to generalize the, the genders, but I'm just talking from experience. Um, yep. The boys, they, they know it all. Their, their ego is, is amazing. You have to, <laughs> you have to prove to 
a boy or a man that you know what you're talking about before they listen. You walk into a gym with girls and you're your coach, you have to give them a reason to not listen to you. You know what I'm saying? So they're 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 bought in because you're a coach. Yeah. On the boys, I mean, if you heard, I don't know if you heard today, but Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant just told the world that you know our, our coaching is going to be collaborative. You know, we don't need Steve Nash to come in here and just be our coach. You know, we, I can do this. I mean, he literally said that, and that's just that's just a perfect example of how, how men think. You know, we we think that we we know everything. Girls, right. they 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 just want to please you. They they want your approval, to almost to a fault, you know, almost to a fault. And then the emotions part, I I had to kind of learn. And I have two daughters, and I'm married, so there's a lot of women in my life. life. And so I and I'm a counselor too. And so about <laughs> I would say seventy percent of the kids who come to my office are are girls. So I spend a lot of time, and I've learned a lot more mm-hmm. about women the last ten years than that I had the previous thirty years, thirty five years of my life. It's not even close. Um. But I, I know girls, that's just how they process. It doesn't make, doesn't make them weaker or less capable. That's just girls process with their emotions. And I just had to learn that that's okay. You know, it's fine. What I did have to put some stuff in place that made sure those emotions didn't, you know, deter action and, and get in the way of other stuff. Like I remember one of my first practices, I don't know, one of my girls was upset and she takes off to the bathroom crying. I'm like, ooh, I never seen that before. But <laughs> the thing that got me is like three or four of the girls followed her in there. I like, no, 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 no. Mm. <laughs> I said, I said, if she would, <laughs> if she wants to have her moment, that's fine. We're putting a rule in yeah. in our uh, in our program is called no pity parties. Meaning, you can you can have a moment, but four girls are not going to go over and and try to make you feel better. You know, we we got stuff to do. Uh, but honestly, Derek, I've had more fun coaching girls um, than I've ever had coaching any anybody any level. I mean, and it could be Jesuit girls, but our girls are just they're so coachable, um, and that's the great thing about Jesuit people. You know, people get Jesuit has this reputation. People think we give scholarships and we recruit. I'm like, man, I left college because I didn't want to recruit. I think I'm gonna come here and recruit some 13 year old girl. Like you know, um, so we don't recruit. We don't. We just, I show up and 80 percent of our kids are coming from Catholic you know schools anyway. So I'm not you know I'm not going after kids. Um, they they show up. They show up. Um, but the the Jesuit kids are so coachable because of the school. I mean people people and we have talent. Don't get me wrong. We've had some good players. I have some some good, good players. Mm-hmm. Um, but my kids are demanded to be excellent every day at 7:45 a.m. Like every, like, like excellent. Like they, from their dress code to their workload to how they communicate. Like I always say, one of the most important people in my program is our is our school secretary because she she is making them accountable at the second they come in at that school. No, you were you were twenty seconds late. No, you don't get a free pass. No, no, get that gum out of your mouth. Tuck your shirt in. Where's your ID? You know, so they're they're coached all day. So when I get them at three o'clock, the hard work's been done. You know, they're they're, they're ready to go. So right, um, and, and girls are awesome. Like I said, you have to you have to lose their trust. 
because they trust you uh, when they walk in and first meet you. Where boys, you have to you have to gain gain their trust. Yeah, I agree with that. I think I've had a very similar experience in that. So that's good stuff. Uh, Coach, you've had the opportunity to, to coach your daughters, uh, which is something that's really cool. Uh, can you kind of talk about what that experience was like and maybe offer advice to any coaches that have the opportunity? Well, only one of my daughters played, and she only played up to eighth grade. So I didn't get to coach her, you know, competitively at this level. I coached a couple of youth teams. She wasn't really into the club. She kind of she started weaning out of the sport like sixth mm-hmm. grade or seventh grade. So I really didn't have that experience that some of my colleagues have of coaching their daughters. Uh, but when I did coach coach her, um, I, I just tried to keep the two roles separated. You know, I'm dad at home, I'm coach mm-hmm. on the floor. Um, I always wonder how it would have been if she played because I'm extremely demanding, um, and she wants mm-hmm. to please, and she's a perfectionist, and I'm. I'm actually totally okay with how everything turned out. Uh, and she's doing wonderful stuff. Uh, and my other daughter's a junior graduate, and my oldest one just graduated. She's a freshman at Loyola Marymount. Um, but that advice I would give is is the communication for any relationship, you know, being in counseling for years, uh, you can never go wrong by being transparent. I don't care. I don't care what relationship it is. It may be uncomfortable, to hear and sometimes it can be uncomfortable to say uh, but I would expect if I'm coaching my daughter that you better be honest transparent and and have some boundaries about you know when when you bring up basketball uh, you know the, the drive home into the house whatever um, so like I said I, I didn't have the varsity level experience but that would be what I would probably advise people yeah Absolutely. Great. Well, Coach, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, We'll return with more with Coach Lowry right after this on the Oregon Basketball Coaches Podcast. The start of school means it's time to sign up or renew your Oregon Basketball Coaches Association membership. OBCA membership includes access to exclusive resources that help personalize instruction, understand players' mindsets, and maximize the impact of your practices. Members also receive access to the OBCA mentoring program and have a voice in improving the game at the state level. Membership starts at just $15 a year. Register online today at or.nhsbca.org. Welcome back to the Oregon Basketball Coaches Podcast. Derek Duman here with Jesuit Grove Basketball Coach Jason Lowry. Uh, Coach, one of the things uh, I like to ask, um, especially of, of guests like like yourself, when uh, you know in the state of Oregon, uh, most basketball coaches are white males, <laughs> and you uh, are a coach of color, uh, which I think is is awesome and something that we need more of in in this state. Uh, but what I'd like to kind of dig in a little bit too, if you don't mind, is kind of talking about what that experience has been like for you, uh, and if you feel like you've been treated any differently because Ooh, of that. That is a loaded question. Um, yeah, well, <laughs> the thing about being a black man in this area, um, it's 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 no different coaching than when I'm not coaching. I I am very aware of what people see when they see me 
Um, I'm a six foot three, 255 pound, you know, black dude. I've been fitting the description all my life. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, and it carries over to sport as well. Um, I, I know what refs think when I question them, if you know what I'm saying. Um, it, it's, it's different. I know mm-hmm. it. Um, I, I know, and I'm, yeah. I'm an animated coach, and I know what that looks like to people versus I've had colleagues of different races and different genders be just as animated or more and not get the same reaction uh, from anyone, whether it's fans or parents or administrators or reps or whatever. Um, like, like I know when I walk up to an mm-hmm. ATM and I'm behind somebody in line, I, I know what they see. I know what they think. Mm. And, and as a coach, I understand that too. Now I'm, I'm almost 45 years old. I'm a lot more comfortable in the skin that I am uh, and who I am. And I've kind of got over trying to make other people comfortable. I'm, I'm past that. You know, I've, I've, mm-hmm. I've, I've taken my next step as a, as a man, as a black man, where I, I really, if you have an issue with your perception of me, then I, I, I'm done. I can't, I can't control that. So in the last few years, I, I really don't care what people, what they may think. And, and I'm not taking that into consideration as much, you know, so you couple the large black man with Jesuit, who a lot of people don't like. And, and I, I know how we're viewed. I, I, I know. Uh, and so, um, but also, I am who I am. And one thing I think sometimes miss out on and I think is so important when you're trying to build relationship with your players and, and trust is you have to be vulnerable with them. You have to, you have to let your, your players mm-hmm. see you and get to know something about you that has nothing to do with you as their coach. Um, and, and I know being the place that we live at in Oregon – I live in Hillsboro, so I live in a I live in a suburb of a very white city, um, and I know that for a lot of my girls who are mostly Caucasians, that I am the only mm-hmm. black person, black adult male, that they maybe have ever met at having at having a relationship at this level. You know, I'm sure they they know other black people, but I mean someone that they work with go through stuff with, learn from, you know, for, for multiple years, I, I know that I'm the only one for, for a lot of them or one of, of only. Um, so I, I always share what it means. I always share to them my experience that I'm walking, whether it's in practice. I mean, whether it's on MLK day, whether it's on retreat, whether it was one of my kids who took, the, who took a knee a couple of years ago, um, you know, the George Floyd stuff this, this summer, I wrote my team like a four or five page letter about exactly, you know, what I'm going through. Um, and so I, I would, I would just encourage coaches of color, um, who are working in the state who are working with, uh, you know, mostly Caucasian student athletes for the most part to understand that you may be the only one that they ever meet 
and and to let them experience that and to share stuff with them. And some of my most powerful conversations and and moments I've had with my team has been over social justice issues. And I continue to do that. And I'm very vocal. I don't I don't hide it. Um, my wife is in the work. My wife is the director of diversity, equity, and inclusion at Jesuit. And she's also a private consultant, does a lot of work. Uh, and she's also black, and so are my two daughters. So this is this is not just something, this is who we are. And so uh and I think our kids and our 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 students in our schools need more educators of color, period. Um, so I don't take I don't take that that part mm-hmm. of who I am uh lightly at all. Yeah. That's great, Coach. Thank you for, for sharing that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll switch gears on you a little bit. Um, I've been told uh, that your basketball philosophy uh, <laughs> is similar to vanilla ice cream. Uh, can you explain the analogy oh, and man, how that represents you your basketball one philosophy? <laughs> no, I can't reveal my source, Coach. I'm sorry. Well, I can't reveal that, my that's source. funny. Uh, my, my first year... <laughs> At Jesuit, one, won, won the state title, finished top 20 in the country, our best team. Um, we, we were simple. We picked you up full court. We played straight man. We didn't run around the trap. We didn't – there wasn't no two two ones, one two two quick. There was no. On the court, I'm applying pressure on you all game. Mm-hmm. Man, and that, that's who I am. I'm a pop – like I said, a, a pop disciple, hard, strong, man-to-man defense. Uh, and offensively, I had the best player in the state. Liz Brenner was an absolute stud. Um, for I mean, sure, people who was around back then will know who she was, but she's probably the best athlete the state has ever seen. Uh, and I'm not saying best female athlete. I mean the best athlete the state has ever seen. And so I had a bunch of guards who can pressure people and get after people around her. So we, we picked up full court, straight man, and a half court, Straight man in a half court offense, four most four man motion around Liz, and that's all we did. We were the best defensive team in the state. We led the state in scoring. We did everything. But I had a there was a coach in our conference who you know once again Jesuit guy. I wasn't really a I wasn't really part of the high school coaching fraternity. So who's this new guy coming in and coming down from college? And you know he's a Jesuit, and you know people didn't like me. That's okay. <laughs> Um, but, uh, there, there was, he would tell people, oh, they're, 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 they're just too vanilla. I'm like, first of all, thank you. First, I said, first of all, thank you. Thank you for the compliment. I appreciate that. My <laughs> boss used to say the same thing. These people used to call his teams born. He used to say, thank you. That's, a, that's great. Cause I'm not really interested mm-hmm. in a bunch of oohs and ahs and, and crazy schemes and this and that. We're going to get in your face. We're going to guard you. You're going to move the ball, and you're going to have to deal with Liz all game. Uh, so, anyway, that was, the, that was the word that I had heard this coach was telling people that I'm vanilla. And I was like, well, thank you. And let's talk about vanilla. Can you make, can you make the ice cream flavor without vanilla? In? What's, the most, what's the most popular ice cream in the world? It's still vanilla. So, I mean, yeah, I mean you, you're, not, you're not telling me anything bad about Tell me a vanilla. I'm just going to be real good at what we do. Um, and I, I use that word a lot. I think I told my girls about that this year. <laughs> no, this this week. <laughs> Talking about vanilla. 
Mm-hmm. To my freshman, you know, we're plain, <laughs> we're simple, and it goes back to like I said a little bit ago that I had jobs where I had to keep a vanilla. <laughs> I had to make sure we played hard, played defense, rebound, and didn't right. turn it over. Vanilla, that's that's what wins. So that's right. kind of the the vanilla origin. <laughs> yeah, I like it. I like it. It's cool too when you think about you know talking about Coach Pop. And, yeah, uh, those fur teams, right? That that multiple titles, and that was always the thing. They weren't flashy. They weren't, you know, they just played really good defense and executed. And they had the big fundamental in the middle, and uh, they just beat you, <laughs> right? So, yeah, very cool. Um, coach, you talk about you know uh-huh. players like Liz Brenner uh, that you've had the opportunity to coach, and uh, you've coached a lot of talented players at Jesuit. Uh, can you talk about Maybe how you approach coaching those types of players differently uh, than um, a typical. I wouldn't high say player. I coach them differently. But I don't coach them differently. You could say I coach them differently because I'm a coach them harder. I Meaning I'm gonna I'm make an example. I'm making an example out of you, mm-hmm. Liz. Like I said, I, I keep going back to Liz Brenner. She's kind of my case study because she was freaking amazing. Um, but I I coach the hell out of her from the get-go so I can this entire program that if Liz Brenner can be held accountable, then you who can't make a layup can be held accountable. You know, so um, I, but as far as doing anything different, you know, a lot of it has to do with me being a Jesuit. You know, we've had deep, talented teams where there was absolutely no reason for me to treat anybody any different. Um, uh, that's just not how things happen in our place. Um, so I would think I would think to answer your question, I, I coach them harder because because by coaching them, that's helping me coach everybody else. Yeah. How do you push a kid like that who, you know, maybe doesn't have, you know, your practice, for example, and your backup post still can't guard it? Right. Like, what are some things that you did or. Was there anything that you did in particular to kind of? Push uh, her, I don't think I did anything uh, in, in particular scenario. in practice. We 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 play a lot in practice. I coach out of live situations a ton. Uh, our backup post was actually decent and can actually give her a little bit of a look. Um, so yeah, there was nothing nothing I had to do in practice that was different. And Liz loved coaching, loved being coached. She she was she was a competitor. I mean, she once she found out what I was about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is great. You know, I, I, this is what I need. This is what I want. Uh, right. And she, so yeah, I'd have to do anything different to her, different for her, other than to, to coach her as hard as I do anybody else. Yeah, makes it easy when it works like that, huh? <laughs> uh, coach, you talked about you know Jesuit and the expectations of kids both in school. Uh, but also there's some high expectations, I think, when you're, when you're head coach at, at a place like Jesuit. How do you kind of handle and manage those expectations, both for yourself oh, and man. for um, your team? How do I handle for my team? Well, there's a couple levels to that. First, as far as expectations at Jesuit, Jesuit is a, all, is a lot about the process, making sure we do things correctly. Uh, to make sure our kids are ready for when they leave here. I know Jesuit has had a ton of success. I know from the outside what people see and think that we're this at this athletic 
just powerhouse and that's all we're about. Um, but honestly, when, when you get on campus, athletics is no different than our drama program, our Christian program, our campus ministry program. Um, I, I am I am a coach. I'm Coach Lowry, but from from eight, you know, from seven forty five to three, I'm Mr. Lowry, the counselor. Um, and and my my principal as Mr. Lowry, the counselor, um, the best coach in the state of Oregon, who I think is is Gene Potter. He's also, in my opinion, the best algebra one teacher mm-hmm. in the state, and that's how Jesuit sees him in our building. He's Mr. Potter, our 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 best math teacher, our football coach Ken Potter, my another mentor, of mine, my my office buddy. He wears tie from eight to three every day he's mr potter not just this football coach like if you walked in his office other than the pictures up on the wall you'd have no idea you know coach potter was our football coach and so it's a jesuit thing inside that it's just kind of all fit we're we're educators and people ask me what i a lot of times i don't say that i'm a counselor or i'm a coach i say i'm an educator and so as long as we're doing that um we're going to meet every expectation that we set. Um, but I do feel that as a coach, I have a responsibility uh, to clearly define those ex- expectations. I think that's what gets a lot of people in trouble. Like they didn't meet expectations. Well, did you, what were the expectations? You know, that's, that's one of my, my coaching nuggets is that I, I think I have a job to do as a coach is number one, I need to clearly, clearly, uh, lay out what our expectations are. Like, this is what we do. We play defense. We play hard. This, this We share the ball. This this is what we do. This is how we practice. Uh, the second thing I think you need to do once you clearly establish those expectations is you have to teach them the skills to meet those expectations. We want to play fast. We want to rebound. We want to defend. I think over the years I've been around, we play as fast as anybody. We defend as well as any- we rebound as well as anybody because that's what we're expected to do. And I teach them to do that. And the final piece, which is the most important, them accountable to those expectations. So a lot of coaches and educators will set this is what we're going to do, but when they don't meet them, nothing nothing happens. And so once again, I go back to Jesuit as has been coaching my kids all day, every day those expectations so when i give them to them it's not difficult and those expectations never include wins losses league titles or state titles i don't, I don't put those things on them. i don't say we have to win 20 games or we're going to win metro we're going to win state no we're going to be the best team that we can be today the best team we can be tomorrow and i bet you if we do all that stuff we're going to win plenty of games and we're going to win plenty of titles so, so I think I think breaking it down and the little, little expectation, those daily ones, takes takes a lot of the pressure off and has allowed us to be consistent and have some really good years and have some years that are not so good and still maintain and, and be be pretty low. All right, we're going to take another break. When we return, Coach Lowry will try to beat the shot clock here on the Oregon Basketball Coaches Podcast. Want more from the Oregon Basketball Coaches Podcast? 
You can listen to all our episodes at our website, anchor.fm slash OBCA, or subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Stay up to date with the Oregon Basketball Coaches Association on social media at facebook.com slash OregonBCA or on Twitter at ORHoopCoaches. Welcome back to the Oregon Basketball Coaches Podcast. Derek Duman speaking with Coach Jason Lowry of Jesuit Girls Basketball. Coach, uh, for my next set of questions, I'm going to put you up against the shot clock. We're going to put 35 seconds on a timer. And I'm going to ask you some rapid-fire questions that should only have one to two-word answers. Uh, And we're going to see how many questions we can get through in 35 seconds. Sound good? All right. One to two words. I'll do my best. All right. Uh, Starting now, do you think Oregon High School basketball should have a shot clock? Yes. Should it be implemented to sub-varsity levels? No. How big of a lead do you need before you pull off a press? That depends. There's a lot of variables. What's your favorite way to guard on-ball screens? Uh, that depends as well. It's a lot of variables, but I, I tend to be more aggressive. What's your favorite pregame meal? Chicken. What's one word officials would use to describe you? Loud. Loud. Time. Good work, Coach. That was good. Played fast right. there. Like you guys like to play. I like it. I like it. Uh, Coach, you probably know, uh, you know, the shot clock is a hot topic issue in the the state of Oregon and uh, across the country at the high school level. Uh, Can I have you elaborate uh, that you are in favor of the shot clock and and why you are? Yeah, I I just think it cleans up the last few minutes of a game. You know, you hear a lot of people who are opposed to adding it, saying that, you know, it's not really needed because people are going to be taking shots on a regular basis every 20-odd seconds. That's what the research says. And I don't disagree or, or you know, don't believe, you know, it's not that I don't believe that part of it, but I'm just talking about the last two, three minutes. Um, and I'm a defensive guy, so I'm always thinking of something from a defensive standpoint. Like if I'm down seven points with three minutes to go, I'm not panicking. I know that I'm going to sit down and guard for 30 seconds and it can can get the ball back. Versus if you're down seven with three minutes now, I don't know, is the other team stalling? Do I need to start gambling? Do I need to start fouling? Now, I'm willing to, to do those things, but I just don't think that – I think the end of games are too clunky uh, on both sides. And, and same if I was up seven with three minutes to go. Am I going into my delay game now? Uh you know, or, um, you know, it, it kind of takes all that out and, and it kind of it kind of gets back to giving the defense the chance to know if they sat down and guard and block out and board that they're going to be able to get opportunities to, to end the game and don't have to run around and trap and foul and stall and, and all that stuff. So I just think it cleans up the end of the game. Even if we had the last – even if we had the, 20, the shot clock for the last three minutes of the game, I think that changes a ton of stuff. So, yeah. And, yeah, and that was the biggest, you know, coming from college, uh, I kind of noticed, you know, it took me a while to kind of figure that out and get to know my kids and know what I'm supposed to do 
up six with a minute 40 to go in college, it was, it was simple. I had 30 seconds to shoot it. So it wasn't a lot of, you know, it wasn't a lot of thinking. I just had to execute. But now it's just, it's just, it's just a clunky end to a game without our shot clock right now. Yeah. If it's implemented, do you think we should go 30 seconds or 35? Uh, 30 is kind of fast. I know it, it, it moves kind of quickly. I would probably say 35. Um, yeah. I think 30 may be a little too quick because uh, I can see teams saying, oh, you only got 30 seconds to get it across. Well, I'm going to get this little, you know, token 2-2-1 two, two, pressure to make you eat up 10 seconds and get it down to 20 seconds and get in my zone and make you think a little bit longer. Uh, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't want that, but I think 35 seconds, I would probably lean a little bit more towards that area. Yeah. How do you select team captains? Uh, we do not name captains. Um, I don't, I don't believe leaders, uh, need that title. My leaders are going to be leaders, uh, regardless of what they're, they're, they're called captains or not. Um, at the beginning of the game, when the refs asked the captains to come over, I've always, and this is something I learned from my college coach way back in the day, we just rotate seniors to go to go talk there. Um, he hated for his better players who had to warm up to take time out of their warm up to go talk about really some meaningless stuff <laughs> at the midcourt before the game. Like the players don't need to come over for that. I'd rather have them getting shots up. Um, mm-hmm. So. So we have leaders, and I, I think our, you know, our leaders come about organically. I don't, I don't think you need to name them. Um, our, our leaders are pretty defined by their action uh, and, and their resume. Uh, now, when the season ends, I'll be happy to throw that title on somebody if it helps. Like if I'm talking to, you know, the media or a college coach or something like that, and uh, and I'm being honest about this kid and their leader. Like, hey, this was my captain. This was my leader. But as far as having, like, the teams vote on it or me name a captain, I just don't believe that um, that that's needed. Your leaders are going to lead, whether you give them a title or not. Do you have a favorite team-building activity? Yeah, uh, there's a couple. Uh, every every November, uh, the first week of tryouts, uh, we go to Rockaway Beach uh, on the Oregon coast. So, Usually, you know, our football team is pretty good. So usually we're in, like, the state quarters or round of 16, usually that Friday night. So we practice. We we feed the girls. Uh, we watch the game, and then we head to the beach, and we're getting there probably 10, 30, 11. And then we're waking up Saturday practicing, and then we have the rest of the weekend for our team bonding uh, events. And, I've, and over the years, the actual schedule uh, – have actually gotten smaller for that weekend where it used to be real detailed, like, you know, we're doing this, and then we're doing that, and we're doing this. Then I kind of learned that, you know, I'm a big believer in letting stuff kind of happen organically and not having to push them so much. And so just putting our kids in a time uh, together and space together, we take their phones away, and we just make them spend time with each other. And uh, it's, just a, it's just a great weekend to start off for us, and we, we get a lot done that weekend. Another one of my favorite um, team building exercises revolves around MLK Day. We always practice on MLK Day. Obviously, the day is off being a national holiday. We always have finals the Tuesday after uh, MLK Day, so we'll go at like 10 o'clock and we'll go for like 90 minutes or so. 
But at the end of practice, we have a pretty, you know, like I mentioned earlier, um, I'm pretty transparent and honest and vulnerable with my team about who I am and my experiences, particularly as a as an African-American male uh, whose mom came from Birmingham, Alabama, who had colored on her her uh, birth certificate, was called the N-word so much growing up, she didn't think anything was, was wrong with it. Uh, her My grandfather moved the family out in the early 60s to Portland, actually with the sole purpose of getting out of the Jim Crow South. He did not want my my mom and her siblings to have to go through the hell uh, that, that you know, a black family would go through in Birmingham. My mom actually went to school uh, with the girls who were killed in the 16th Street, uh, Baptist Street uh, burning, uh, bombing back in 1964. I mean, she was on the front lines. And so I go in depth with my, with my team about, about social justice on that day. Um, and I just think they, they get to see me as a lot more as a coach. And like I talked about earlier, I will, you know, there's a really good chance that I am going to be the only black male educator that they are ever around. And, and so um, to, to help share what I've been going through for the 45 years I've been on this planet, with the future leaders of our world, I think is what an educator is supposed to do. So um, those those two days, our retreat and the MLK Day are always two of my favorite ones. That's great. How about a favorite drill? Um, four on four shell. It's just so much teaching can go on there. And, we're, and like I said, I'm a defensive guy. Everything comes from that end first. Um, and I said, I mean, who doesn't run shell? Everybody runs it, obviously. Um, uh, but but Coach Pop, that's a, that's still a staple of his practices today. It's just so much teaching that can come. I mean, just so much. The only thing, the only thing that you can't teach or or get a lot of reps at in shell is transition, defense, and offense. Mm-hmm. So because of that, every other day we do transition shell, so we can work on sprinting back and getting organized. And uh, but yeah, if you gave me an hour to practice. Or if you gave me 30 minutes of practice, I'm using that 30 minutes for shell, and, and we're getting a, we're getting a lot of stuff done. So we do that. I think I've ran shell every single day I've been a coach for the last 24 years. Love it, love it, uh, Coach. You know, with COVID pandemic, uh, you know, season's been pushed back. All sorts of reorganization going on. Uh, you know, a lot of us still hopeful that we're going to have season. Um, how are you kind of preparing both yourself and your kids uh, to get going into this this coming season? Well, you know, we're in the season one uh, of the OSA schedule, and, you know, Jesuit has been clear to have workouts. Um, and so we're working out twice a week. So I get together with them for a couple hours twice a week uh, to stay connected. Uh, you know, we're, we're pretty privileged with our kids and, and their opportunities. Uh, to get training and to, to play in club teams. So, you know, a lot of my varsity girls are still playing and working out on a regular basis. So we're kind of kind of lucky in that sense, even though I don't get to see them as much. They're probably seeing their club coaches a lot more than they're seeing me, but I'm glad they're working out. Um, I'm just trying to, to – I'm in the long haul for this. This is my last job. I plan on doing this for a while. So I'm, I'm more of the program big picture and, 
it sucks if we have to lose a season. Absolutely horrible. I feel horrible for my seniors. But in the same time, I got to keep coaching them. So I'm trying to stay in contact with my kids, keep building my program, um, and, and see if we can get through this. But it's a tough time. You know, I've, I've, I'm not hopeful we're going to have – I'm hopeful we'll have one. I'm just not positive. Or I don't think it's going to happen based on some of the information that came out just in the last few days. Uh, so I'm trying to find myself and what else I can do. I've never been through a winter uh, without a basketball season, like ever. Like I think yeah. I started playing basketball in the second grade, and ever since then I've been on a team, uh, high school, varsity, college, whatever. I've been a part of a, a season. So trying to find my way and, and find some other things to do, but uh, it is what it is. And, and um, a lot of our coaching and a lot of our mentorship and development and formation doesn't always come during the season, doesn't always come during basketball. So I'm still trying to stay connected to my, my kids as much as possible. Yeah, for sure. And they'll be better for it. They'll be better for it. Uh, well, Coach, that's all I got for you today. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. We really appreciate it. Awesome. It was fun, Derek. If you have any follow-up questions or want to get a hold of Coach Lowry, you can find his contact information in the episode description. We hope you'll join us next time here on the Oregon Basketball Coaches Podcast. Until then, coach him up. Thank you for listening to the Oregon Basketball Coaches Podcast. Is there a coach you'd like to hear from or a topic you'd like to hear us discuss? You can write us a message on the Anchor website or send us an email at OregonBasketballCoaches at gmail.com. You can also subscribe to this podcast on Spotify.